Hello and good afternoon. Welcome to our afternoon online service, 30th of August 2020. I'm bringing it to you from the study today for various reasons, but not, but it's nonetheless it's still a huge privilege to be in the Word of God. So will you bow your heads with me as we open before we get into the Word in prayer. Father, I thank you for your Word. I thank you that every word is living and operative. I feel the need of the Spirit's help to speak well of Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen. We come to John chapter 3, and the wonderful chapter, possibly the most famous chapter with the most famous verse in the Bible. And our text this afternoon comes from the Gospel according to John chapter 3. We've been working our way through this wonderful gospel and at the end of chapter 2 we were introduced to another kind of faith. You might want to put that into quotation marks because it is a faith that is not actually saving faith. We're used to two different responses to Jesus. Pro-Jesus, anti-Jesus. We have the disciples who are for Jesus. We have many of the Jewish authorities in John's Gospel who are against Jesus. So we tend to think that if we are for Jesus, then we must be among the good guys. But yet, we saw at the end of chapter 2 that many believed in his name, which sounds great. Except verse 24 tells us, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And at root, the same Greek word translated believed in verse 23 is the same as entrust in verse 24. They believed in Jesus. Jesus did not believe in them. Well, last week was the principle, but in chapter three, we come to the therefore the for, the so. So let's read together the first eight verses of John 3. Now there, came, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And may God bless this reading of his holy and inerrant word. Several years ago, John Piper wrote a book entitled What Jesus Demands of the World. And it was a look at the Gospels and in particular all the things that the Lord Jesus commands of the world. And the very first chapter in the book was on John 3, verse 7. You must be born again. 
Unless we think that Jesus was only speaking to Nicodemus, you may notice that in some of your Bibles in verse 7, there will, there will be a footnote by the you. And you see that it is a plural you. Jesus is speaking not just to Nicodemus, but to all of you. One theologian said the plural you sets Jesus over against not just Nicodemus, but the entire human race. You and 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 you all must be born again. This isn't a word from your parents, not ultimately a word from your friends. It's not a word from your pastor. It's a word from Jesus. John Witherspoon, who wrote a treatise on regeneration in 1764, wrote, By whatever name you are called, whatsoever leader you profess to follow, whatsoever ordinances you enjoy, if you are not born again, you shall not enter the kingdom of God. Whatever name you are called, whatever leader you profess to follow, whatever books you read, whatever church you belong to, whatever sort of ordinances and hymns and signs that you attend to, if you haven't been born again, Jesus says you will not enter the kingdom of God. Well, let us talk about Nicodemus, because he's the example of what we saw at the end of chapter 2. There were some who were entrusting themselves to Jesus, but Jesus wasn't ready to entrust himself to them. Well, we've we know the story well, but let us just recap who Nicodemus is. We read in verse 1, he's a Pharisee. And you know who the Pharisees were? They were the religious conservatives. They took the law seriously. They were teachers and scholars. And if you're at all familiar with the New Testament, you hear Pharisee. And you expect that kind of scary music in the background. The imperial death march, if you like, from Star Wars, if you're a Star Wars watcher. But that isn't, that's not how they were viewed. The Pharisees would have been people writing the books that church people would read. They would have been the people who were invited to speak at the conferences. They would have been the people pastors quoted. They were popular with the common folk because they took the law seriously. Now, some of them turned out to be hypocrites, Jesus showed. But they were the, the religious conservatives, the people who said, yes, this matters to us. Nicodemus was one of these. He was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. It also says he was a ruler of the Jews, which meant he was part of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. The Sanhedrin was the highest national institution in charge of Jewish affairs. They were the ones underneath Rome's imperial authority. And they, the Sanhedrin was granted authority to exercise on behalf of the Jews. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's part of the Sanhedrin the select group of Jewish leaders in charge of their religious, political, national life. Not only those two things, he was also an elder statesman in verse 4. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? It seems likely that he asks the question because he considers himself 
to be an old man. Pharisee, Sanhedrin, elder statesman. In fact, it is possible that his name Nicodemus is mentioned because he is somebody that people would know. Just so think about what we know about this man. An impressive religious figure. But not only who he was, but notice what he says. Verse 2. Nicodemus makes five positive assertions about Jesus. He calls him a rabbi, a title of respect, akin to say in your honour. And this is significant because Jesus didn't have formal rabbi training, rabbianical training, that he would have been set aside as a rabbi. But his disciples called him that. Nicodemus called him a rabbi, this honorific title. So Nicodemus is approaching Jesus much better than some of the Jews did in chapter 2 verse 18 when they said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Nicodemus comes to Jesus and calls him rabbi. That's the first thing Nicodemus asserts about Jesus. Secondly, he calls him a teacher. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. Thirdly, he says you are a teacher come from God. Jesus will be crucified later in part because the the religious establishment didn't accept, couldn't accept that Jesus came from God. And later in John's Gospel, we read that some people say, now, is it true that you have a devil? They don't think that Jesus comes from God. They think he is possessed by Beelzebub himself, but not Nicodemus. He says, Rabbi, teacher from God. John 9 verse 16 Some of the Pharisees said this man is not from God. Many Pharisees came to the opposite conclusion to Nicodemus. Nicodemus says, Rabbi, teacher from God. The fourth thing he affirms is the signs. No one can do these signs that you do. He doesn't deny the miracles. They weren't in question. He doesn't try to explain them away. The fifth affirmation at the end of verse 2, unless God is with him. Nicodemus is speaking truth, a lot of truth. We have no record of him making a false statement. We have Nicodemus, a decent, educated, religious man with impressive credentials, social standing, and he thinks highly of Jesus and he is not going to heaven. Not at this point. There is some debate among scholars whether Nicodemus in the rest of the gospel shows himself to finally get it or whether He never really does. Well, we'll save that for another day, but don't miss this. There may be a lot of people within the sound of my voice, albeit online, with a lot of religious credentials, impressive people, well-educated, who know many true things about Jesus. They affirm all sorts of decent things about Jesus. They say, I like Jesus. And they're upright, respectable, of high social standing. And yet they're not on the way to inherit the kingdom of God. Because that was Nicodemus. He saw Jesus. He saw the signs. And according to Jesus, he wasn't in a position to see the kingdom of heaven. It is possible to see one without the other. What is meant by the kingdom of heaven? Well, the kingdom of God has some reference for this life. But in this incident, I believe that it's a, a synonym 
for eternal life. If you look at verse 15, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The same thing in verse 16, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. In Matthew 19, we see a rich man comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus uses these two phrases interchangeably. He asks about inheriting eternal life. Jesus talks about entering the kingdom of God. So the two phrases can be used interchangeably. How surprising it must have been a first century Jew to learn that Nicodemus wasn't bound for the place of blessing at Abraham's side. It'd be like you learning that somebody had gone to all the right schools, had the right education, had gone to the best seminary, had been an effective pastor, preacher, teacher, author. And then Jesus says, you're not going to see the kingdom. And perhaps it was because of Nicodemus's privileged position that he was in such a dangerous predicament. Those who are in a lofty station are often in more danger. It is no coincidence that so often in the Gospels, it is those who have nothing left to lose who say, Jesus, wash me. Use my, I use my hair to wash. I'm completely broken. These people come to Jesus. It is hard for those who have so much to lose who may want to sort of think about a cost-benefit analysis. There are lots of speculations why Nicodemus came at night. We don't want to overdo it, but there is some element that he didn't want to be seen. Maybe a John's way of bringing to our attention um, this to our attention because there's so much in John's Gospel about light and darkness, the contrast. Here is somebody coming to Jesus but isn't yet ready to come in the light. He's coming in darkness. He's nervous. He's an important person. Maybe you're important. You have a lot to lose. It's okay to be pro-Jesus, but don't get carried away. That's not Nicodemus, really, isn't it? He came at night, nobody around. And as we see, Jesus was not actually teaching anything that was not in the Old Testament already. But from what we can tell, he was teaching something new in mainstream Judaism in the first century. This was something that Nicodemus should have gotten, but did not get. And it seems many people did not understand the need to be born again. The Mishnah is a kind of Jewish law code, a constitution. It would be considered one of their holy books. It was a commentary on oral traditions, on different parts of the Torah. It dates to the end of the second century and has rabbinical sayings and teachings and traditions from the first and second centuries. So it doesn't tell us what Jews thought around the time of Jesus, but it gives us some indication of what some of the rabbinical opinions and how some people thought around the time of Christ. And there's a section in that book called the Sanhedrin. And there is a discussion about who will share in the world to come. And the Mishnah begins by saying that all Israelites have a share in the world to come. Then it lists some expectations. It says those who read teach heresy or read heretical books and then it says three kings and four ordinary people don't make it into the world to come the kings are jeroboam aham manasseh the four ordinary people balaam doeg akhitapel and gehazi and then it says the generation of the flood they don't make it the men of sodom they don't make it the spies 
who brought a negative report of the promised land, they don't make it. The party of Korah that rebelled and the generation who died in the wilderness. And then in each of these are different opinions by this rabbi who says this and this rabbi says that. All Israelites will enjoy and have a share of the world to come. That's what the Mishnah said. And then there are some exceptions. And it struck me that would have a lot of resonance with people today. That's how we think about inheriting the kingdom of God. That's how we think about eternal life. And we think especially as Christians, if you're in church, if you say publicly you like Jesus, if you pray prayers at some point, then they make it. Yes, there are some really bad people, Hitler, Stalin. That's how many people tend to think about eternal life. Most are in. Unrepentant murderers, they don't make it. People who burn their Bibles, heretics, but otherwise you're in. It strikes me that is fairly common today. It should also strike us that is not at all how Jesus saw the matter. Jesus said to Nicodemus and would say to you, you must be born again. Implying that you are out unless something supernaturally puts you in. It is the opposite. They thought we're in unless we're bad. But Jesus said you are out until the sovereign supernatural work invades your heart. You must be born again. All men have sinned. All men are unfit for the kingdom of God. And that simple statement will set you on a radically different trajectory. Do you believe that we are born basically fit for the kingdom of God? Unless we mess up? Or are we born into the world of such a state that we are naturally unfit for the kingdom of God? They are two different religions. What does it mean to be born again? Well, let's be clear about what it doesn't mean. It's not a reference to physical birth. Nicodemus says in verse 4, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter into his mother's womb and be born? He's saying this with a scornful gaze, I think. There's nothing physical about this. What does it mean to be born again? It's not a political label. Now, some pollsters and pundits make it a political label. And they may say this is what it means to be born again, evangelical. They're good terms. I like both. Born again was Jesus' term first. Evangelical has a good heritage. It usually means gospel people, but today it is just a political label, almost like a socio-economic category, the born agains. That isn't what Jesus had in mind. It's not even a psychological state. You ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. Who lives in your heart? Jesus, Buddha, Krishna, Muhammad. That by itself isn't a very good apologetic. So it's not talking about a psychological state of feeling better. It's not a matter of personal self-identification. You're not born again if you say you are. So what does it mean? Verse 3 and verse 5, the two stand in parallel. Jesus gives a similar construction. Truly, truly, I say to you, Amen, Amen, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then in verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
Same construction, he says in verse 3, born again. Verse 5, born of water and spirit. The phrases stand in parallel. They're used synonymously. To be born again is to be born of water and the spirit. To be born of the water and the spirit is to be born again. What does it mean then to be born of water and the spirit? As verse 5 says, some people say it is a reference to baptism. In some traditions there is a theology built on that baptism causes you to be born again. It's called baptismal regeneration. When you have water applied, you have original sin washed away and you are regenerated. That is not what Jesus is saying. We know that isn't what Jesus is talking about because he's talking to Nicodemus, a first century Jew, who had no concept of any of these things. Nicodemus didn't know about a church sacrament that hadn't been instituted. Some people say water and spirit is a reference to physical birth and to spiritual birth. You have to be born by water and then you need to be born again by the Holy Spirit. Now both of these things may be true, but it isn't attested in first century Judaism that water was associated with birth. That's not what Jesus means. The simplest explanation is usually the best. They both speak of newness. Jesus isn't thinking of two different things, but thinking of the same thing. He's describing on the one hand as one water and the other hand as the spirit. Both speak of newness. And the imagery comes from Ezekiel 36, verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Water is to be sprinkled clean, to be cleansed, to be new, to have a clean start, a new principle at work. And the spirit is to have a new heart, to have a live beating heart instead of a heart of stone. That is what Jesus means about being born again. If you go back to John, you see in verse 3, the phrase born again can be translated born from above. Nicodemus understands it with reference to birth. And so it is translated here with again instead of above. But both speak to the same reality. There is no material difference. Jesus is saying, you will not see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Unless this new thing happens to you, which is to be born from above by the Spirit of God sovereignly in your life it is like washer water washing you clean it is like the spirit changing your heart and then the idea is explained again in verse six that which is born of the flesh is flesh that which is born of the spirit is spirit it gets a little confusing here because ezekiel's prophecy is using flesh in contrast to stone so a stony heart is a bad heart that doesn't feel and a heart of flesh is a beating heart here the contrast is not between stone and flesh, flesh being good, but between flesh and spirit. Now flesh is bad, spirit is good. What Jesus is saying is that there are two categories, flesh and spirit, natural and supernatural. The fact we are here, we are in this world, means you have a material, natural birth. You're born of flesh. That's what you inherit by being born of woman. Flesh begets flesh, like begets, begets like. You're not 
apart from the work of God, born spirit, your born flesh. That which is flesh is flesh, that which is from the spirit is spirit. John Calvin says, in order that we may be his true disciples, we must be new men and we can add new women as well. This is regeneration. It's a doctrine of regeneration. It's one of the most important doctrines of the Christian faith. It's the, one of the most necessary to be proclaimed clearly and frequently. The great revivals in the 18th century with the Great Awakening centred on the new birth. Because on both sides of the Atlantic, most of the preaching was to people who had inherited some kind of Christendom, some kind of church context. They belonged to some sort of church. And then Whitfield and others came preaching a dynamic message, telling them that belonging to a church wasn't enough. You must be born again. And it's been one of the hallmarks of evangelical faith and theology. And I fear in our day has all but disappeared. Now it's assigned as a political label or thought to be something from a bygone era, but we need to hear it because Jesus said it. Wherever there are many churches, there will be many counterfeit Christians. Perhaps they know themselves to be counterfeit or perhaps they know they don't know. But you must think and you must consider these things if you are to be more than a fair weather Christian. What will it look like to carry your cross in our world? It probably won't mean imprisonment, not yet. Maybe not even outlaw, outward hostility. But it will mean that you will appear strange to your friends and co-workers. And I think of many people falling away because no one told them they had to count the cost. And perhaps no one told them that God was not just looking for people to go to church and like it. He was demanding that people be born again. And what will it mean when your faith costs you something? When it costs you a job promotion? When it costs you friends on social media? When it causes people to think that you're the most backward dinosaur of a person? How can you think those things? Do you know that we haven't thought about those nonsense ideas for at least five years? And Jesus says, there are some people who trust in me and I do not yet trust in them. They've been in church, but they haven't been born again. The doctrine of regeneration is an alarm to formalists and to moralists. To formalists, the people to say, I know how to play the game. I know how to look right. I know how to go to church. I love the songs. I know the Bible verses. And Jesus comes along and says, I'm looking for formal religion without power. It's an alarm to moralists, people who say, I'm not doing anything bad. I'm still married. I love my kids. I volunteer. I keep out of trouble. Nicodemus was a good person. He just wasn't saved. It's an alarm to formalists and to moralists. It's an offence to legalists. It's an offence because it means you have no contribution to make to being born again. What is the cause of regeneration? It isn't baptism. It's not human will. It's not your effort. It's the Holy Spirit. John 1 verse 12. But all to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You played no part in your first birth. You had no part in being conceived. You contribute nothing to your second birth. There's no cooperation in being born again. It is 
monogenistic. Jesus says in verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You cannot control the wind. What a radical statement of God's sovereign purposes in our redemption. This word wind, which is pneuma in Greek, ruach in Hebrew, the same word translated as spirit. Wind, spirit, the wind blows, the spirit blows sovereignly. So the new birth is not external or partial or natural. It is internal, total and supernatural. You contribute nothing to it. So what? Is that it? You can't do anything, but you need it. Let us pray. Maybe that's how Jesus wants to leave us. We're close to that. You can't do anything to create it, to cause it, to birth it, to increase it. You can't control it, but you can see it. You cannot control the wind. You can see the effects of the wind. So what does it look like to be born again? The wrong question is, what do I do to be born again? The right question is, what would it look like if I were born again? Well, you have a new affection. You have a new allegiance. New affections, meaning your inclination, your predisposition, what your heart is drawn to. Your affections will be new and your allegiance would be new. Not me, but Christ. I must decrease. He must increase. My I'm trying to do when I preach my friends is blow some hot air well you say well I've been saying that for a long time James but theologically that is what I'm trying to do that the spirit through the word would blow and it is up to God what he will do in your hearts I can't turn your hearts from stone to flesh you can't make your children's hearts from stone to flesh or your husband or your wife or your parents you can't do it you blow let the Spirit blow through the Word, praying, Oh God, may this be the day when the breath of God invades their stony heart and sovereignly, supernaturally causes them to be born again. That's what Jesus demands of the world and he demands of you and of me. You must be born again. Unless a man is born of the water and the Spirit, he will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is not me speaking. This is Jesus speaking. We would do well to consider it. May it be so for his glory and for our eternal good. Amen.